Chapter Thirteen of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hocking. Chapter Thirteen A Mesmerist's Spell. I found on entering the breakfast room that my presence caused no surprise. Neither did any of the guests regard me suspiciously. It had gone abroad that I had gone out to find Kaffar, but was unable to do so. And as Voltaire had publicly spoken of Kaffar's luggage being sent to Cairo, there was to them no mystery regarding him. Several spoke of his going away as being a good riddance, and declared him to be unfit for respectable society. But I did not answer them, and after a while the subject dropped. Voltaire, however, was not in the room, and when, after having breakfasted, I was wondering where he was, I felt the old terrible sensation come over me. I tried to resist the influence that was drawing me out of the room, but I could not. I put on my overcoat and hat, and drawn on by an unseen power, I went away towards the fir plantation in which the summer-house was built. As I knew I should, I found Voltaire there. He smiled on me, and lifted his hat politely. I thought I would allow you to have a good breakfast before summoning you, he said, especially as this is the last conversation we shall have for some time. I thought I detected a look of triumph in his eyes, yet I was sure he regarded me with intense hatred. Yes, I said, I am come. What is your will now? This. I find that Mr. Temple has told you about an interview which was held in the library last night. Yes, it is true. Do you know of what you are in danger? No. What? Hanging. What for? For murdering Kaffar. Did I kill him? I remember nothing. What was done was not because of me but because of the demon that caused me blindly to act. Names are cheap, my man, and I don't mind. Claptrap morality is nothing to me. Yes, you killed Kaffar. Killed him with that knife you held in your hand. I meant that you should. Kaffar was getting troublesome to me, and I wanted to get him out of the way. To use you as I did was killing two birds with one stone. You know that Miss Forrest has promised to marry me, if Kaffar be not forthcoming by next Christmas Eve. That, of course, can never be. So my beautiful bride is safe. And he looked at me with a savage leer. Have you brought me here to tell me that? No, but to tell you a little good news. I have decided to hold you as the slave to my will until the day Miss Gertrude Forrest becomes Mrs. Herod Voltaire, and then to set you free. Meanwhile, I want to give you a few instructions. What are they? You are not to take one step in trying to prove that Kaffar is alive. Ah, I cried, you fear I might produce him. Then I have not killed him, even through you. Thank God, thank God. Stop your pious exclamations, he said. No, you are wrong. You did kill Kaffar, and he lies at the bottom of yonder ghostly pool. So that is not the reason. Why I do not wish you to search for him is that thereby you might find out things about me that I do not wish you to know. In such a life as mine, there are naturally things I do not wish known. 
In going to my old haunts, trying to unearth Kaffar, you would learn something about them. And so I command you, he continued, in a hoarse tone that made me shudder, that you do not move one step in that direction. If you do, well, you know my power. From that moment I felt more enslaved than ever. I shuddered at the thought of disobeying him. I felt more than ever a lost man. As I felt at that moment, in spite of my desire to let everyone know this man's power over me, I would rather have pulled out my tongue than have done so. Are those all your commands? I said humbly. Ah, you are cowed at last, are you? He said mockingly. You matched your strength with mine. Now you know what it means. You did not think I could crush you like a grasshopper, did you? Yes. I have one other command for you. You must go to London tomorrow and go on with your old work. You must not hold any communications with Miss Forrest, my affianced bride. I myself am going to London today and most likely shall remain there for a while. Perhaps I shall want to see you occasionally. If I do, you will quickly know. I shall have no need to tell you my address. And he laughed a savage laugh. Is that all? I said. That is all. You will come to the wedding, Mr. Blake. You shall see her arrayed for her husband, dressed all in white, as a bride should be. You shall see her lips touch mine. You shall see us go away together, the woman you love, and the man who has crushed you as if you were a worm. This maddened me. By a tremendous effort of will, I was free. That shall never be. Somehow, some way, I will thwart you, I cried. I will free myself from you. I will snap your cruel chain asunder. I defy you, he said. You can do nothing that I have commanded you not to do. For the rest, I care not a jot. He went away, leaving me alone. And then all the sensations of the previous nights came back to me. I remembered what the ghost was supposed to foretell, and the evil influence the dark pond was said to have. I saw again the large red hand in the water's surface, and I recalled dimly the struggle, the fighting, the strange feeling I had as my senses began to leave me. Could I have killed him? If I did, I was guiltless of crime. It was not my heart that conceived the thought. It was not I who really did the deed. I had no pangs of conscience, no feeling of remorse, and yet the thought that I had hurried a man into eternity was horrible. I wandered in the plantation for hours, brooding, thinking, despairing. No pen can describe what I felt. No words can convey to the mind the thoughts and pains of my mind and heart. Never did I love Miss Forrest so much. Never was Voltaire's villainy so real. And yet I was to lose her, and that man, a fiend in human form, was to wed her. I could do nothing. He had paralyzed my energies. He had set a command before me which was as ghastly as hell, and yet I dared not disobey. I, a young, strong man, was a slave, a slave of the worst kind. I was the plaything, the tool of a villain. I had to do as he told me. I had to refrain from doing what he told me I was not to do. I had done I knew not what. Perchance a hangman's rope was hanging near me even now. I could not tell. And yet I dared not rise from my chains and see whether the things I had been accused of doing were true. 
I went back to the house. Voltaire was gone. While the guests and family were having their lunch, I felt that I could not join them, so I went into the library. I had not been there ten minutes when Miss Forrest entered. She looked pale and worried. I suppose that I, too, must have been haggard, for she started when she saw me. She hesitated a moment, and then spoke. The whole party are going for a ride this afternoon. They have just been making arrangements. They're going to ask you to join them. Shall you go? she asked. No, I shall not go, I replied. Will you come here at three o'clock? Yes, I said, wondering what she meant. But I had not time to ask her, for two young men came into the room. I went to my room and tried to think, but I could not. My mind refused to work. I watched the party ride away. It was comparatively small now, for several had returned to their homes. And then I found my way to the library. I sat for a while in silence, scarcely conscious of my surroundings, and then I wondered how long Miss Forrest would be before she came, and what she would tell me. The clock on the mantelpiece began to strike three. It had not finished when she entered the room. I placed a chair for her besides my own, which she accepted without a word. For a minute neither of us spoke, and then she said abruptly, You told me you loved me when we rode out together the other day. I did, I said, and I do love you with all the intensity that a human heart is capable of loving. But it is hopeless now. Why? You have promised to marry another man. What do you know of this? Both of us were very excited. We were moved to talk in an unconventional strain. Mr. Temple told me of your interview together last night. A slight flush came to her face. But Mr. Temple has told you the condition of the promise as well, she said. Yes, but that condition makes me hopeless. What? she cried. But no, I will not entertain such a thought. You are as innocent as I am. Yes, I am innocent in thought, in intent, and in heart. But as for deed itself, I know not. I do not understand you, she said. You speak in words that convey no meaning to my mind. Will you explain? I cannot, Miss Forrest. I would give you all I possess if I could. I have nothing that I would keep secret from you, and yet I cannot tell you that which you would know. Did she understand me? Did her quick mind guess my condition? I could not tell, and yet a strange look of intelligence flashed from her eyes. Mr. Blake, she said, my soul loathes the thought of marrying that man. If ever my promise has to be fulfilled, I shall die the very day on which he calls me wife. My heart gave a great throb of joy. Her every word gave me hope in spite of myself. Mr. Blake, she continued, I never must marry him. God grant you may not, I said. I must not, she said, and you must keep me from danger. I, Miss Forrest, I would give you the world if I could, but how can I? You do not know the terrible slavery that binds me, neither can I tell you. I shall trust in you to deliver me from this man, she went on without heeding me. You must prove yourself to be innocent. To do that I must bring this man Kafar. I know nothing of him. I could never find him. Oh, I tell you, Miss Forrest, a thousand evil powers seem to rend me when I attempt to do what I long for. I shall trust in you, she cried. Surely you are sufficiently interested in me 
to save me from a man like Voltaire. Interested, I cried. I would die for you. I love you so, and yet I can do nothing. You can do something. You can do everything. You can save me from him. Oh, I cried. I know I must appear a pitiful coward to you. It is for me you have placed yourself in this position. While I refuse to try to liberate you from it, if only I could, if I dared, but I am chained on every hand. But you're going to break those chains. You're going to be free. You're going to be happy. Her words nerved me. The impossible seemed possible, and yet everything was misty. Only one thing can make me happy, I said, and that can never be now. I have lost my strength. I am become a pitiful coward. You are going to be happy, she repeated. Miss Forrest, I said, do not mock me. My life for days has been a hell. I have had a terrible existence. No light shines in the sky. You cannot think what your words mean to me, or you would not speak them. Will you not, for my sake, if not for your own, exert yourself? Will you not think of my happiness a little? The thought of marrying that man is madness. Miss Forrest, I cried, you must think I have lost all manhood, all self-respect, when you hear what I say. But the only thing that could make me think of trying to do what is ten thousand times my duty to do is that you will give me some hope that, if I should succeed, you will be the wife of such a poor thing as I am. She looked at me intently. She was very pale, and her eyes shone like stars. Beautiful she looked beyond compare, and so grand, so noble. She was tied down to no conventionalities. Whither her pure, true heart led her, she followed. If you succeed, she said, I will be your wife. But not simply from a feeling of pity, I cried. I could not let you do that. I have manliness enough for that even yet. No, she said proudly, but because you are the only man I ever did or can love. For a minute I forgot my woes, my pains. No ghastly deed taunted me with its memory. No dark cloud hung in the skies. I felt my Gertrude's lips against mine. I felt that her life was given to me. I was no longer alone and desolate. A pure, beautiful woman had trusted me so fully, so truly, that hope dawned in my sky, and earth was heaven. Now, Justin, she said, after a few minutes of happy silence, you must away. Every hour may be precious. God knows how gladly I would be with you, but it must not be. But remember, my hope lies in you, and my love is given to you. God bless you. She went away then and left me, while I, without knowing why, prepared to start for London. I had a great work to do. I had, if I was to win Gertrude for my wife, to break and crush Voltaire's power over me. I had to find Kaffar, if he was to be found, and that to me was an awful uncertainty, and I had to bring him to Gertrude before the next Christmas Eve. Away from her, the skies were dark again. Great heavy weights rested on my heart, and my life seemed clogged. Still her love had nerved me to do what I otherwise could never have done. It had nerved me to try, and so with her warm kiss burning on my lips, 
I hurried off to the great metropolis without any definite idea why I was going. End of chapter 13